It's all good. How's everybody doing this morning? It's great. It was nice to wake up finally to a morning where we didn't have to dig ourselves out of the snow, right? Heard it was still a little bit of ice, icy out there. I heard the bottom of Holland, Holland Road there outside is, is a bit tricky, so be careful on your way out. You do not want to repeat what Brett did this morning, uh, but he made it back here, which is awesome. Yeah, so uh, as you heard, just to, to recap what was said in the booth there, but we have baptisms happening today. Um, a young man in our Young Adults Connect group uh, wanted to get baptized. His name is Dre. Uh, he's, a, he's a new believer in the last year. Actually, through, through um, yeah, COVID, just God spoke to him and brought him, brought him into the family, which is awesome. So we'll be baptizing him. And we have two young kids as well from our 180 youth who will be baptizing as well. And if you want to get baptized or if you're interested, if you're a believer, if you've made the decision to follow Christ, but you don't, haven't yet been baptized, we encourage you. You can get baptized today or you can just speak to us and let us know and we'll figure out a way to do that in the future. We are figuring out a way where we can do it in the building. Uh, but as you can respect with the, the very nice school that we meet in, we don't want to get water everywhere with a tank leak or something like that. So we're, we're over the road today in the safety of the inside. Uh, we, we thought about doing Paul's idea last week of just dunking them in the snow, but the snow's gone a little crusty, so uh, we'll skip that for today. And as you also heard in the announcements, we are starting a new series in the new year. Does that sound good? That's right. January, we're a little bit rusty, right? We're a little bit creaky. We ate too much at Christmas. We're a bit lethargic because the gyms are closed. We aren't working out. We're not completing all those New Year's resolutions. But our resolution this year is to get through Luke, and we are going to be in this series between now and Easter. Guess what the amazing thing about Luke is? It starts with Christmas. So we already did Luke uh, over Christmas. That was a little covert uh, begin to the, to the series. Uh, but now we get to continue through, and we'll hit a about two chapters every week, pausing for a couple special guests and a couple other weeks. Um, but we'll hit it, and then at the end, uh, we'll be Easter, and we'll finish our series with that. Does that sound good? Yeah, so we'll encourage you to do that. So this week, I get to preach from Luke 3 and 4. So read it, and every week, you know, the preacher's going to come up and um, pick something out of that chapter that really spoke to them, that really feels like it's hitting the moment for us. Now, this week, just to give you a little recap, because you probably didn't know that we were doing this, um, chapters three and four, you know, Jesus is growing up and he's just beginning his ministry. Um, he, you see a little story at the end of Luke chapter two of Jesus in the temple, and he's sort of like giving, giving the older priests a hard time saying, no, this is what it means. And he was doing a really impressive job, a really knowledgeable, knowledgeable boy. And then we quickly gets to where Jesus is about 30 years old, and Jesus, um, John the Baptist, prepares the way. Again, we've preached on this a number of times before, but John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus. Jesus is baptized both in water, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and God from heaven says, this is my son, I'm so pleased with him, and Jesus begins his ministry from there. Now, you would expect, because we're doing baptisms this week, that we might preach on baptism today. Does that sound like a good idea? No, I thought that was a rubbish idea. We're going to preach on what came after the baptism 
Uh, there's a genealogy, but we're going to skip that little part, and we're actually going to go to Jesus in the wilderness. Yeah, as I was reading these two chapters, I was like, oh, Baptism Sunday, baptisms just makes sense, but we've done lots and lots of preaching in the last year. We've had a good series of baptisms happen in the church, so hopefully you're all familiar. If you're not familiar with what baptism is, come speak to us as a leadership team. We'd love to encourage you, but today we are going to look at what happens, and what is kind of, for me, like you you know these stories growing up. If you've grown up within the church, you just you just know these things. You've heard about them before. But for me, as I as I step back, it's like this is a little bit of a bizarre story right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry journey. So if you've got your Bibles with you here this morning, which I hope you have, or if you're watching at home, uh, whip out your Bible and turn to Luke chapter four, and we're gonna go from Luke chapter four to verse thirteen. And uh, here we find an experience that's sandwiched in, again, right after that baptism. Jesus is led out or driven out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, and then he comes back from the wilderness and he begins his ministry. So an interesting part for us today. But we'll pick it up in Luke 4, and it says this. So right after the baptism, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's where he got baptized, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Being, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. I think it was January. It must have been a New Year's resolution or something like that. No, just kidding. He was tempted those days. He didn't eat anything during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him. He answered the devil. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil, next, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only shall you, and only, and him only shall you serve. And then next, and he took him to Jerusalem. This is the devil again. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Yeah, what a story to kick off. So good news, people getting baptized today. This, we're going to send you out into the wilderness after your baptism and 40 days sound good? No, doesn't sound good. That, don't worry, that doesn't actually happen after baptism, although... No. No, this is a peculiar experience. This is a funny thing to be happening. We, we get to dive in today. Maybe we haven't preached too often on this, on this chapter, on this, on this event. And we're left to ponder the specific circumstances of why did Jesus, why did the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness for, the, into the wilderness for this to happen? 
It's a funny thing. And in, in looking at this, it's like, oh, wow, maybe, maybe when Jesus was baptized, suddenly the devil, suddenly the enemy of God knew exactly who the special person was that was coming. Jesus was hidden during his youth, but now the devil knew, hey, this is my guy. It's my job to take him down. So the first thing we find is Jesus going into the wilderness. The imagery of wilderness and fasting in the Bible, especially 40-day fast, or the number 40 comes up a lot in the Bible. Moses, before he was sent to the, uh, to the Jewish people to rescue them, spent 40 years in the desert. Israel wandered for 40 years in the desert before they were allowed to go into the promised land. And Moses and Elijah and others in the Bible fasted for 40 days and night in similar experiences. So good news, everyone. I figured out how long COVID is going to be. Two years down. No, just kidding. No, that's not what I'm going for today. But Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tested or tempted. That word there that we see is called perezo, where, it's, where our, our, most of our Bibles will translate it as tempted, but it's also translated as tested as well. In Philippians 2, 5 to 8, it says this about Jesus' mission. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though who he was in the form of God did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by, being, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What was the purpose of Jesus' time in the wilderness? It's a bizarre thing, but in Hebrews 2, it says, it says from verse 17, it says, Therefore, he had to be made, made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, for, to make the propitiation for sins of the people. For because he himself had, has suffered when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted." And I love this about the coming. I love this story of Christmas when you sit back and you, you actually ponder what is really happening. What was really happening at Christmas was that Jesus, who was there at the creation of the world, who was there in relationship with the triune God, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, gave up his position as he was seated there and came down to be amongst us. And he didn't just come down at like a great time to be around. No, he came down at one of the worst times to where the people were oppressed, that they were under a, a rule of another nation. They, couldn't, they didn't have free reign to operate as they were. And then he came to a people that ultimately rejected him. And even before his ministry, he grew up like a regular young man grew up. There was nothing too, too, too special about his first 30 years. We don't hear much about it other than he really knew his Bible and he was, had said some profound things to the people around him. But up until that point, he grew up just like you and I. And it says he was tempted in every way, just like us. For me... That gives me strength to know, like, I struggle to know why so much suffering exists in the world. I struggle to, to, to know why we're going through the things that we're going through, why different things happen to those around us or is happening to us. But the truth is that Jesus came. He didn't stay apart. And he came down and 
came to us. And it says he was tempted in every way. I love that in verse 17. It says, so that he might become merciful. Become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus went before us. He was tempted in a worse way than we have ever tempted. So he could trail a path for us to go and follow him. Isn't that great news, church? We're not left to these things alone. It's funny to think about Jesus being tempted in different ways. In this story, we get three highlighted points of how Jesus was tempted. But in those scriptures, if you read the other accounts as well, it was saying he was tempted in every way. Jesus has experienced it all so that he might become our faithful high priest. The first temptation is a funny one, you know. The first temptation, it says in Luke 4, verse 3 and 4, it says, The devil said to him, and he had just completed a 40-day fast, and then the Bible says something really, really obvious. It says, he was hungry. It's like, okay, but you had to say that about Jesus because, like, maybe Jesus, you know, he just, you know, willed the hunger away because he's so holy. No, Jesus experienced the true hunger that would come after fasting for that many days. He was hungry. And then it says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. I was like, oh, okay, good response, Jesus. But if you think about it for a few minutes, you think, well, hang on a minute. What's actually wrong with Jesus, you know, doing that? Do you, do you think it would have been wrong? Like the, the fast has ended. It said this, this was at the end of Jesus's fast. It's over. And now Jesus is hungry. And, and the devil just comes and says, hey, great idea. This, why, why travel to the nearest city for some food? Why don't we just make some food right here? Doesn't sound wrong on the face of it, does it? And we think about other stories in the Bible where there's times that Jesus does this stuff later on in his ministry. Who remembers the feeding of the 5,000? I'm pretty sure Jesus made a lot of bread at that time. So we're like, okay, why is it okay to make bread at one point in time, but not okay to make bread at another point in time? It also got me thinking about another story which you think is far more taboo, maybe for Jesus to to work miraculously with food, was when he turned water into wine at the wedding ceremony. That sounds a lot worse than turning turning a stone into bread after a fast. Isn't that true? It's kind of a funny thing. Like, what Satan is saying is, is, is not completely wrong. It maybe would be okay, but why do we think that Jesus didn't? Again, Jesus, his answer to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. If you look at what Jesus is doing, Jesus is actually using scriptures. He's using the very word of God to come back at Satan. If, and if you read Deuteronomy 8.3, which is way back in the Old Testament, it says just after what Jesus quoted, it says, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's funny. I, I actually think what Jesus was being tempted with here was to actually separate himself from God the Father more. It says in John 8, 28, it says, this is Jesus saying, he says, I do nothing of my own authority. Jesus is saying, Jesus, I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. 
for I will always do the things that are pleasing to him. And if you read Jesus' word there, you realize how Jesus operated. It's like, God has not left me alone. God the Father has not left me. And I only do things in response to what God is saying, not what the enemy is saying, even if it is apparently okay. The other thing that I get from here is that, you know, he had gone to fast. Jesus had gone into the wilderness and fasting. And if you know anything about fasting, you give up food, you give up lots of different things. You basically subdue the flesh so that you might be more attuned to the spiritual in a way. He had gone there to have fellowship with God. In fact, the very essence of the nature of God is he's a relational God. God was in perfect relationship with Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for Jesus to start operating just by himself and just using his, his unique giftings, his unique power, his unique authority, just for self-gratification, that would have been wrong. That would have been the wrong way to go. And I'm reminded from this point in Scripture that Jesus constantly uses his position, his authority for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of himself. Jesus gave it all up. If he started turning bread into... Sorry, I keep doing that. If he started turning things and just making life a little simpler using the little cheat codes of God the Father for his own abilities, then he wouldn't have had the same experience and he wouldn't have been tempted to the same ways that we would have. In fact, at the end of the temptations, if you skip down and if you read in Matthew what happens at the end after these temptations, it says in Matthew 4.11, it says that God sent angels to minister to Jesus. It was true that God had not left Jesus alone. No, God was coming at the perfect time to be with his son. Jesus didn't need to fix it by himself. For me, that speaks to us. You know, in this modern world, we're so, we're so self-sufficient. We're so self-reliant. We're so independent. And that can be a really good thing with our kids at home. We're trying to get them to do more of that stuff. We're trying to teach them how to brush their teeth and take care of themselves. We're not quite at the wipe the butt phase. We still have to do that. But we're hoping that comes soon. And on the face of it, self-reliance, independence, it sounds like a good trait. But Jesus wanted to be dependent on God the Father. He wanted to follow exactly what he was doing. And for us we need to take time and take a step back, is where have we been tempted? Where have we been told that we can fix this ourselves? Where am I trying to turn my life around just in my own strength? Where am I trying to wrestle with it just on my own strength? Where am I reaching out to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, to help me in my time of need? The second temptation, the two of three temptations, comes up in verse 5 of Luke 4. It says this, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is more straightforward than the first hey. Again, the devil is offering a cheat to Jesus. He's offering 
a, a, you know, a way to skip all the hard stuff in between and say, hey, you're going to be ruler. You're going to rule all this stuff eventually. Why don't we just do that now? But why don't we do it under mine authority? It's been given to me first. It's been handed over to me first. The other thing I think about, which is funny, is that did, did, did the enemy, did Satan, did the devil have the authority to even deliver that? Sometimes the enemy tempts us with stuff that he doesn't even have the authority to give. How true is that with sin in our lives? We think it's going to do one thing. We think through that thing it's going to solve our problems. It's going to be a cheat to the end. It's just going to make us feel good for that thing, and it's going to solve all our problems. And then after, and then when we, we're in the, in, in the aftermath, we realize, hey, what I was being sold was a complete lie. The thing that that thing promised to me, the shortcut that thing told me it was going to deliver unto me was completely wrong. And it's actually given me the complete opposite thing. Same for Jesus in this moment. If he bowed down and worshipped Satan, if he bowed down and worshipped the enemy of God, he would have been giving up his rightful place. For us, we need to look at where we're being told lives from the devil. We won't be given maybe the same great visions of ruling over the world, you know, unless your name ends with Musk, uh, uh, Bezos, or, or Gates here this morning. Any of you here? No, we don't, might not quite have the same temptation as these guys. But in similar ways, the devil is offering us tainted versions of God, God's eternal promises. Do this and you'll be happy. It's really the full nature of idolatry, isn't it? Where Jesus actually quoted from as well. This comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 14 and 15. So it says, at first it says, you shall worship the Lord God, Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But in Deuteronomy, if you read a little bit after that, it says, you shall, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst and is a jealous God church, God is jealous for us. When the enemy was tempting Jesus, God was jealous for his son. He wanted his son to choose himself, and God wants us to choose him. And the last temptation that Jesus wrestles with, that we're told about, even though he, he, he struggled with so many others than just these, says in, from verse 9, it says, And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, you know, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, I love what Jesus is coming back to the enemy with. The, the enemy is quoting scripture. Hasn't the enemy done that from the very beginning? We're familiar with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The, the, the devil uses and, and twists a word of God into a false meaning. And Jesus says, even though you're quoting scripture at me, even though if I did do that, God might do that, it is wrong for me to do that thing in this time. Again, not a tricky one for us to see why it would have been wrong for Jesus to, to listen to the devil in that situation. But for me, it was another shortcut that the devil was offering him. 
If you know anything about the temple, I was just researching this, okay, like where, where exactly was, did the devil take him? It says if you look at the, the plans and other things and the accounts of where the temple was and this pinnacle, this pinnacle was 150 feet up off the ground. It was this huge tower that could have been seen for miles and miles around. And it says the devil took Jesus there. And if you know anything about the temple, to the place where he took him, it would have been a busy place. It would have been filled with people. There would have been people coming and going, praying, seeking God, worshiping, sacrificing. And there then would have been this person right at the very top uh, looking to jump. I've never seen anything so drastic as that. But when someone's in a high place and it looks like they might fall off, everybody pays attention. And could you imagine Jesus giving in and then swarms of angels coming to his rescue? Again, Jesus could have done it. But could you imagine the aftermath the people would have seen? Wow, who is this guy? What kind of powers does this guy have? Oh, yeah, this is the Messiah that we've been hearing about. Let's take him. Let's make him king. Let's crown him king and let's overthrow the Roman government and let's take the world back. Surely God has promised us that this is the way things are going to go. Maybe that was some of the reason of what could have been happening in that time. Again, for me, it's a shortcut. It's a shortcut. Jesus didn't come with the flashy ministry. (laughs) He didn't come with the bells and the whistles. And he didn't come with the banners and the great advertising campaign and the social media and all this other stuff. No, he came one by one to the least of those around him. If Jesus had done this, they very well may have taken him instantly and made him their king. But Jesus isn't a rock star king. No, he came as a servant king who lived humbly and eventually died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for us. Jesus knew that the enemy was tempting him with the powerful way to go. But actually, that would have not achieved the eternal achievement that Jesus needed to do. For us, in our lives again, we need to ask ourselves, where are we seeking the flashy, quick fixes? For us, as we come to church, it's like, do I care more about how it looks or what God is actually doing in this place? Do I care more about how I am perceived on social media and by my friends? Or can I be real with them? Can I lay out my struggles plainly with them? Can I walk in true community with them? The way of Jesus isn't flashy. It isn't lots of different things that sometimes it might seem. It's slow and it's faithfulness and it's sacrificial love from God to us. You know, how, what is the, the purpose for this story for us? Why was this included in the Bible? We know it's included there because Jesus went through it so that he could become the perfect high priest. For us, the way we struggle through temptation is different. And Jesus would have would experienced all these temptations as well. In a book I've been reading recently by John Mark Comer, he says, you know, there's three enemies to the world. There's the world 
itself, the fallen world. There's the flesh, which is the, the sort of fallen nature inside of ourselves. We are created in God's image, but something is broken inside of us. There's our fleshly self that wants to make all sorts of wrong decisions sometimes. And the devil, the third enemy, the devil and the demonic. You know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes um, on the cross and before he's betrayed by one of his disciples, Jesus is there praying. And he asks his disciples, is like, hey, just stay up with me. Just watch over me while I go over, go over there and pray. And Jesus says something funny about the relationship of our fleshly fallen nature. He says in Matthew 26, 41, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he says, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Then it says again, for the second time, he went to pray, prayed, and he prayed, Father, if this, cannot if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus reveals this battle that we have raging inside of ourselves sometimes. The spirit, my spirit is willing. My spirit wants the right thing, but my flesh is weak sometimes. One uh, funny guy who lived in the 14th century, he's a, he's, a, he's a monk. He was called the hut burner because he used to live in different huts and he had apparently a knack for, for burning them down. But uh, uh, Father Maximus from Mount Athos, he's, he came up with these five stages of temptation in our lives. Five things that the enemy tries to move us further down the line. And this was the hope that the enemy was trying to do with Jesus to, to scupper God's plans. This is the first stage of temptation that we see that the same thing happens to Jesus is the assault by the enemy. And that can be the assault from the world. Maybe the world is trying to thrust an idea or a, or a thing onto you. Maybe it's what you're seeing, what you're watching, something like that. The world is coming at you with, with our culture and different things that we see as good. And he's trying to detract from us. Maybe it's that. Or maybe it's our fleshly weakness. Like the disciples there, they couldn't stay up. They couldn't, they couldn't watch over Jesus. Or maybe it's something dem demonic as well. But the enemy comes, whichever one it is, and it comes to us at this first stage with temptation of assault. And then there's interaction. And in fact, Jesus experienced this stage as well. It says the person opens up a dialogue with that evil thought. Now that is not a sin within itself. In fact, Jesus had dialogue with the very enemy of the universe, the devil, and quoted back scripture at the enemy to get rid of him. But often in these interactions, after the assault, after the premise of this sin is introduced to us, we are given this option, we are given this interaction to, to talk with it, to, to choose it. And then stage three comes consent. In 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 13, it says this about the stage of consent with sin in our lives. Again, we, we have the attack, we, then we have the interaction, and then it's our choice whether we choose to do that thing or not, just like Jesus had this choice but never entered into it. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
God always makes a way for us. The next two stages that this that this uh, uh, old preacher used to that came up with a key for us because sometimes we think about sin in our lives just like that. It's just about oh, it's just the attack, it's the onslaught. Then it's the then it's the idea of it. Then it's like kind of like looking at this: is this sin? Is this not sin? And then there's consent. But then the the cool thing about well, not the cool thing. The thing about this is that there's two stages that come after this. It said stage four is captivity. It says that person, over time, becomes hostage to that evil idea or thing, and it becomes more difficult to resist that evil thing. That, for me, is submitting to a new slave master. In Galatians 5, verse 1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. How many times, sometimes with sin in our life, with temptation in our life, through saying yes a couple, three, four times to that thing, we then become slowly putting on this burden of slavery in our life. And stage five, the last thing that, the, uh, that this person came up with, with how temptation works, he says, says you become obsessed. And this is the stage where you no longer feel captive to this thought. You no longer feel a slave to this thought. No, you actually feel like this is you. This is you. Oh, I've done that thing so many times, or I've always struggled with this thing. That is just a part of me. And instead of fighting that thing, instead of knowing you're a slave to that thing, instead of looking to God for help with that thing, you just put it you just put it aside and carry it along in life. You, know, you might no longer feel that that sin is wrong. And that's a difficult thing we find with the world sometimes. The world has a lot of ideas for life and flourishing and what love is and all these other things, but it can be so easily come to that thing where we just think is a part of us. Why... Did I pick this verse for us today? <laughs> Why didn't we talk about baptism? It's interesting. For something, for me, it was just the wilderness experience of Jesus spoke to me, and I thought, this is the experience of the church in this time. We've got a few hundred people gathered here this morning. It's so good to see you. It's so good to be with you. But this time, these last couple years, I can't believe it's already been a couple years, it's felt like a bit of a wilderness experience. You know, Jesus was sent by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. For us, it's, we've come about, we've come into it for different reasons, for different things. We've stayed in it for different lengths of times, for different reasons, for different things. But it is a wilderness experience nonetheless. And we find two things. In the wilderness, we find there's an attack of the enemy in the wilderness, but there's also opportunity for God to prepare and release in the wilderness as well. One person I listen to and I follow said this about this story. It says, in the story of the temptation, we see something new. Jesus opens up a new pathway by his choice, unseen and unknown. 
He said, testing is the kiln to which pottery is placed. And it can either crack in that kiln, that hot furnace that makes the pottery. It can either crack in that kiln or it can be made into something beautiful. When we place Jesus at the center in the wilderness, we learn from this story that he begins to show us a new way. The tests that he resists need not lead to destruction. The story of Jesus' temptations reveal the question to us, how can we grow in the desert? Indeed, for God's people, Jesus has faithfulness, obedience, communion with God, and a time of flourishing. Church, I believe out of this time that God is refining us. That God wants to bring us out of this time with something new. And this is a difficult time. This is a time where the church is tested in many different ways. And we're experiencing that testing in so many different things. It feels like that, that hot furnace that the pottery is in. And, oh, I feel like I might crack in this, in this pressure cooker. But God has a way out. God has a way for us to flourish. What are the temptations of of the wilderness that we're experiencing right now. And I've experienced these, I'm sure you've experienced these as well. In Proverbs 18 verse one, it says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. I've noticed that in my own life, when I'm lonely, when I'm by myself, when I don't think anybody's around me or listening to me, when I'm secluded and hidden, I start to become really selfish. I start to become really, uh, really knowledgeable about my own needs and desires. Life in community breeds wisdom. Isolation breeds self-seeking polarization. You know, Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, what did they do? They were still in the garden. It says they hid from God. They try to get away from him. Church, there's something about being hidden. And we haven't hidden by choice. We haven't gone away by choice. And many of us are here today. Many of us have friendship groups are being seen. But we indeed have been hidden by different forces, different things, away from each other. And that has a price to pay. In these times, the temptation for a church in the wilderness is that we become fearful that we try and become self-reliant, that we try the independence thing over the community thing, that we try the isolation thing, and through that becomes opportunities for the devil to say, did God really say? Do you really need those people? And I know everyone here this morning, I'm preaching to the choir because you are here. But we've all struggled with that. It's like, how badly do I need my connect group right now? I can probably get away without it. How badly do I need my accountability friend right now? I can probably get away without them. And things drift, things fade. We need to pursue what God is calling us. It says at the end of the wilderness experience that God ministered to Jesus through his angels. Will we allow God to minister to us in these times? You know, Jesus is our perfect high priest. We read Hebrews already, but we'll read it again. It says in Hebrews 4.14, it says, Since we then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find great and grace to help us in this time of need. One of the things that I love about us being able to start this series, this series in Luke, um, from here until um, Easter, is that we're going to see how Jesus walked by the Spirit. Guess what? One of the coolest things about reading the gospel is everything, every step that Jesus did, every encounter that he had is actually possible for us to do as well. Jesus isn't some, some sort of high movie star that we can't emulate. No, Jesus has led us to the very example of himself, saying, follow my ways, follow how I had community with God, follow how I had community with others, follow how I broke bread and how I was, had deep relationship with people. The solution to, a, to a people in the wilderness, to Jesus in the wilderness, to us in every situation is to walk by the Spirit. And Jesus walked by the Spirit. I just want to end as I was reading through this again here this morning. I just had Romans 8 come to mind and maybe just turn there. I think um, we're not going to read the whole of Romans 8, but I think some of the homework this week is out of this. Just read Romans 8 and, and get it in your body, get it in your mind, get it in your, in your head and, and, and feast on this thing of what, of what Paul is saying. It says in Romans 8, from verse 1, it says, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps the band can come up just as I read this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. It says in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit. In fact, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, which he is, church, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Perhaps as we stand and just, this season has been a, a hard season for many, many people. Even you guys listening at home this week. I feel like God just wants to say <laughs> that there is opportunity in this time. I think at the beginning of this situation, we were all, I remember myself just saying, isn't this so cool? We get to spend so much time with Jesus. We get to spend so much time seeking the face of God. 
But just as I was preparing today, I just felt that there were people around who were weary in the wilderness, who were weak in the wilderness, who needed a touch of God. Perhaps if this message has spoken to you, we know that messages speak to different people and when they're in different places, but we would love to meet you here this morning if you're struggling. If you would like someone to come alongside and pray with you, we would love if you just came to the front or came to us after the meeting for, for some prayer. We're gonna have baptisms over the road, so it's a hugely celebration time as well. And isn't that the picture of what Jesus has done for us? He's brought us out of death. He's brought us back to life. He's made a way. He experienced the wilderness way before we experienced the wilderness. He's made a way through. He's building a church that's ready to take on the next thing, that is ready to see revival in this place. Well, the world is now more aware than ever before that this place is broken. Oh, we thought we were doing great. No, this place is broken. They are looking for a solution, looking for a church to rise, looking for a people who aren't being harassed and weary, but people who are strong, confident with the mission that Christ has given us. But if you're weak, there's a father, there's a son, there's a Jesus who has been through it. He wants to wrap his arms around you just as he journeyed with the disciples and he calmed the storm. Jesus wants to be with you. He wants to get you through. There is a way through. Find community, find people around you who you can travel with. Again, we're up here this morning if you'd like as well. That's amazing, Andy. I just wanted to share one thing and then we'll spend a moment in worship. But, you know, I think the battle that Jesus was facing in his temptation, what, what Andy spoke about in Galatians 5 as well, is that um, the devil says something, if you are the son of God, you know, and I think we've all been there. If you are, fill in the blank, a Christian, if you are like Jesus, if you think you are this, that, the other, what well, the amazing thing is just before the devil asked Jesus, if you are the son of God, the Bible tells us that God the Father says to Jesus when he's being baptized, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You know, as we stand here this morning, as followers of Jesus, the temptation for us is that we treat the things that we do as who we are. But, but the Father said over Jesus, you are my son, in whom I love and whom I am well pleased before he ever did anything for him. Before he ever performed a miracle, before he ever um, revealed the supernatural wonders of God, God simply said, you are my son. Amen? And as we're standing here this morning, I want to encourage you. Uh, Andy talked about Galatians 5, the, the don't take on the yoke of slavery. You know what the yoke of slavery is? The yoke of slavery is when you and I try to put laws on our life that we say, I'm going to just try and follow this law. I'm going to try and do this thing. I'm going to do this in my own strength. And Paul is pleading with the Galatians, like, don't put the yoke of slavery of trying to change yourself from the outside in. Don't try and deal with temptation from the outside in. If I just act better, if I just look better, if I just do better. No. If you are the Son of God, and Jesus says, I am the Son of God. I am who I am. And as we stand here this morning,
our action. If you're in a place of struggling with an explicit sin, a sin of the heart, it doesn't matter. I want to encourage you this morning is that God is on a mission of growing fruit in your life. And the fruit tells more of who you are than the acts of the sinful nature. Because the fruit comes from a seed that he has put inside of you. Amen? The acts of the sinful nature are acts. And the enemy will try and use those acts to say, this is who you are. Because you did this thing, this is who you are. But God says, no. You are my son. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Amen? Let's just spend a moment and worship God.